Good to be back. Good to see you all. Uh, my wife had an operation on her eyes Friday, and so that's why she's not here today. And uh, she's recovering, but she's doing fine. And, uh, but it was a nice little getaway we had now. It's nice to be back with you all and uh, worshiping, worshiping together. Uh, I hope this doesn't bother you that I put this over like this. Does that bother you on this side over against the other side? All right, let us uh, together uh, look at God's Word. Let us stand as we read God's Word together. Or I, I'll read it and you'll listen. But it's God's Word from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 5, 16. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. Abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. He kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the piece of price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up, covered them up, and after carrying them out, they buried them. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and the wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in, found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Let us pray. 
our Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. I usually uh, make a drink for myself for lunch. But, but my wife would rather that I have a sandwich. And so she makes me a ham sandwich and it has ham and cheese. And then I do something she thinks is unthinkable. I put jelly on top of the, of the ham. And I, I decide on a particular day whether it's blueberry or raspberry or whatever. But it's good. If apricot is the best. But did you notice the sandwich in this passage? There's a sandwich in this passage in verses 32 to 37. And the middle of, the pass of this sandwich is verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. The bread of the sandwich, or bread or bun, or whatever you want to call it. But they're all connected because you eat them all together. Is verse 32 and 34 to 35. Now the congregation, better translated multitude or many, crowd. The crowd of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And verse 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. With this sandwich and with that bread of all things in common, all th uh, being of one heart and one soul, of being owners of land or houses that would sell them. Think of that. These were inheritances. These were part of what had been established in the Old Testament in terms of, of being distributed to all the people of Israel and they're not being taken away from those. They were giving up their land and their houses in order that those in need among them would be taken care of. You know, it just reminds us of the power of, of love and care that happens in the life of God's people. It's critical. It's part of the DNA of the people of God. Loving one another in such a way that this would happen. And being of one accord. You realize how important being of one accord is? My dear friends, if there's someone here that doesn't want to be of one accord, you're invited to leave. We don't need that. We don't need anything like that. What we need are people who love one another, care for one another, ready to give to one another, support one another, encourage one another. And would you believe that were this to take place within the body of Christ, as then even now, with great power, the gospel would go forth. The gospel would be, go forth. And God's abundant grace 
would be upon them all. Now, that says all who were owners of land or houses would sell them. Now, you remember, you go back to chapter 2 of Acts, and it's just a continuation of that. So I, I suppose that from Acts 2 to Acts 4, at this time in Acts 4, which would be a number of days, this was going on because in Acts 2, after Peter's first sermon, uh, it says that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and sharing them with all as any might have need. So this was part of the DNA of the early church, the, uh, uh, what we might call authentic Christianity or authentic generosity. And it says all, and then they would come and they would lay them at the apostles' feet. Now we're given a specific example of a fellow named Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, which means he was from Cyprus, which means he was a Hellenistic Jew. We make a distinction between Jewish Jews and Hellenistic Jews. They're all Jews, but the Jewish Jews are those who were brought up in Israel, in the land of Israel. And, and, and so they, they had that whole context in their life, their culture, their customs, everything. They were right there. Hellenistic Jews were those that were brought up more in the Roman world where the Greek was spoken uh, regularly, was a common language. And, and they, were, they, they came from those cultures. Perhaps they came and were part of what happened in chapter 2. Okay? But he was from Cyprus. And what we're going to find as we go through Acts is that, that the spreading of the gospel to the, to the Hellenistic world came primarily from Hellenistic Jews. Because they realized the importance of spreading the gospel to, to the Hellenistic world. But this man, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, uh, bar, son, navas, encouragement, son of encouragement. You remember how, how when Paul had uh, been... Uh, confronted by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and, and he went to Damascus and then he uh, preached in Damascus and the Jews there did not like that and they were ready to, to, to kill him and he was let down in a basket uh, from, uh, on the wall uh, in order to escape Damascus. Comes to Jerusalem, the dis disciples in Jerusalem, the apostles wouldn't accept him, they were afraid of him, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. A son of encouragement. That's who Barnabas was. Barnabas was with Paul on the first missionary journey. He was going, he and Paul, Paul also who was a Hellenistic Jew, going out, a son of an encouragement. Uh, here we see how his ministry began. It says, he owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have all who had land and houses laying at the apostles' feet. We, had, we have Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who sold a piece of land and laid it at the apostles' feet. Freed from the love of possessions, driven by a love of those in need, a fulfillment of the commandment of Jesus, 
to love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, that all men might know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then we come to the first major setback of the apostolic church. The entrance of deceit and subsequent discipline. We read on in chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, kept back some of the price for himself and his wife's full knowledge, bringing a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet. Hard to know all the motives precisely, but a few appear obvious. They wanted to appear generous like all the rest of the people, and like, like Barnabas, they wanted approval, the glory of men for that to be there. But they didn't want to give away all the proceeds, and that's okay on itself. They, they didn't want to give away all the proceeds. They wanted to keep some for themselves. And I think we're safe in attributing at least these two motives to them. However, it appears that they also wanted everybody to believe they were given everything rather than just some of it, the entire proceeds of the sale. So they were being deceptive. In fact, listen to what Peter says to them. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then look what happened. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard it. That will get your attention. That will get your attention. And then we read on in verses 6 through 10. The young men came to, uh, young men uh, buried Ananias, and three hours elapsed. Sapphira comes in. Peter asks her the question, was this the price? She says, yes, she falls as well dead. And And the young men just arrive from putting Lazarus in the grave, and then they take her and put her in the grave beside her husband. Some judge this incident harshly, but you need to be careful. It wasn't Peter who took their lives. It was God. Peter was simply stating the truth of what they did. F.F. Bruce, a prolific uh, writer of commentaries and other books, New Testament books uh, in the 20th century, says that Peter was lacking in pastoral skills He should have told Sapphira first what happened to her husband. But I I don't think so. I think Peter was saying precisely what he was supposed to be saying. And the Lord did the rest. Sapphira was complicit in the plot. But why did God take their lives for this? Why was their deceit all that serious? You know, there are several incidents in the Bible like this. I don't know if you remember them all, but... I remember uh, R.C. Sproul, you know, a lot of things he says you can't forget. But I remember R.C. Sproul dealing with these kinds of issues. For example, there's Nadab and Abihu. And you remember that it happened out in the wilderness when God, in Leviticus, the the worship manual of of the Old Testament, when when, uh, 
in Leviticus 1 through 7, God very carefully, precisely describes the, the different sacrifices and how they're supposed to be prepared and how, how they're all supposed to be carried through. Then, then he consecrates Aaron and Nadab and Abihu for doing it. And then uh, uh, Aaron uh, offers a, initial sacrifices. And then it, it may be the very first thing that, that Nadab and Abihu did. It says they offered strange fire on the altar of incense. And the fire came out and consumed them because it was not according to what God had commanded. You go to Uzzah. You remember Uzzah? Uh, they're moving the, the ark from, from Abinadab's down in between Jerusalem and, and, and the Philistine territory by the coast. It's a mountain, and it's rough places. And well, we had gotten the ark back from the Philistines after they had kept it for a while and didn't want it anymore. And, and it brought, brought it to Abinadab's house. It was there for, I think, over 50 years. It was never brought up to anywhere by Saul. And, and it was in Samuel's time before that. So uh, anyway, it was in Abinadab's house, and they put it on a, a uh, crate, what, what do you call it? A, a what? Cart. Thank you, thank you. And a new cart. And, and they uh, put it on this new cart, they, they didn't do what they were instructed to do, which was use the poles that go through the ark and for Levites to carry it, you know, from, from one place to another uh, using the poles. They put it on this cart, and so they start, start up the mountain, and it's bumpy, and, and the ark is about to fall over, and Uzzah touches the ark to make sure it doesn't fall, and God, and God uh, strikes him dead. And he says after that, God struck him for his irreverence is irreverence. Oh, by the way, with Nadab and Abihu, it says, by those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy, and before all people, I will be honored. And there's also one more that comes to your mind immediately, and that's Achan, when they're coming into the promised land, they cross the Jordan Valley, they go and they defeat Jericho, and, and uh, it, had, it had been said to all the people not to take any of the plunder, because the the first fruits belonged to the Lord. They were going to be given houses, land. It was a land of milk and honey, milk having to do with all the cows and sheep and all this type of stuff, and honey having to do with all the produce of the land. This was all going to be theirs, but the first fruits was going to be, was going to be the Lord's, and it was called holy to the Lord. But dear old Achan decided he liked that bar of gold that he saw and these shekels of silver and this beautiful garment that he saw. He took it and he hid it in the tent. That means the family also knew. But the end product was that all of them were put to death. And I remember Sproul talking about this somewhere. He says, when you, whenever uh, you, you find examples that, that offend you in Scripture... Uh, you, you, put them aside and, and study them. Look at them carefully. And you'll come to one of three conclusions. You'll either say, I don't understand this, period. Or you'll say, I understand this and I don't like it. Or you'll say, I understand this and I accept and understand, understand what's going on here. He said, if, if number two is the one, 
uh, then something's got to change, and it won't be Scripture. It needs to be you. He says, now I'm not saying it the way he could, but I'm trying to. I'm trying to give that kind of a, of a nuance. And he says the reason they can't come to grips with these kinds of issues is because they cannot come to grips with the holiness of God. Because behind all these acts of supposed wrath of God upon people is the, is the purity of the justice of God, and behind all the acts of justice of God is his holiness. And so if you're offended by these acts of justice, then you're out of touch with God's holiness. And in each case here, it had to do with God's holiness, with who God is, with how God is treated, with how we think about God. It had to do with irreverence toward God. It had to do, and it also had to do with a significant time in the history in each one of these cases. And this is a significant time in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Returning to the question of why the death penalty, well, first of all, it was not that, that they sold the land and gave money. Rather, it was that they sold the, money, the land, kept back some of the price for themselves, and then pretended to be giving all of it to the apostles. It was their deceit. Sinful motives entering the equation. And Peter says, they lied. They didn't just lie. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. They conspired together against the Lord. And he also adds that Satan filled their hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit. What we may consider to be not all that big a deal. God may consider it a big deal. Have you ever lied? If you say you haven't lied, there's your first lie. When you lied, did you think that you were lying to the Holy Spirit? When you lied, did you think that Satan filled your heart to lie? Now, we're not going to take time here to go through the, what the Bible says about the spiritual world around us that's in total conflict with each other. We, I had it here to do, but I didn't decide we wanted to get through by noon. This was a very large incident in the life of the apostolic church. Now listen to this. Up to this point, believers were of one heart and soul. No one claimed anything belonging to him was his own. Do you remember the sandwich? Do you remember Barnabas? Then came this deceit and hypocrisy entered the equation. Do you realize that never again in Acts is it said... Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to everyone who had need. The only thing that comes after this is in chapter 6, verse 1, where it says that there were problems. Hellenistic Jews uh, complained that their widows were not being served as, as well as the Jewish Jews. That which was used so powerfully by God to bring men and women to himself is mentioned no more. The sandwich was never again repeated 
by Luke. And so we come to the impact of it all. Uh, Verse 11, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. There are generally two meanings or more. You can have other nuances, I'm sure. But basically two nuances that come from the word fear. The first is, is that human fear that means you're literally afraid of God. Scripture introduces the former when we read of Adam after the fall. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid and hid myself. But then there's a fear that's commonly referred to as a reverential fear of God. That's the fear where Proverbs begins and says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But it's much more than this, too. Professor John Murray and his Principles of Conduct, that's the name of the book. It's a small book, but it's a very significant book on ethics, biblical ethics. He asks the question, is it proper to be afraid of God? He says, on the one hand, it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there's reason to be afraid. (laughs) So he puts that aside. But on the other hand, he says, the fear of God is the apprehension that God, in his sovereign nature, commands the totality of our commitment to him, the totality of our trust and obedience. There's a lot there. He says, it's the frame of mind and heart that reflects our understanding of who God is and that he tolerates nothing less than our total loyalty and commitment to him. That's the context in which we put these last, these past uh, illustrations. I would, I would put it in this way. The fear of God is fully acting out the three commandments of God, the three main commandments. The first commandment, thou will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. The second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the third commandment, that you are to love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Pulling all three of those together and carrying them out is the fear. Well, first of all, we have a healthy fear coming over the whole church. That's the first impact. The second impact is there's a division of the people beginning to take place as a result of this deceit. Look carefully at the text here. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate, to stick to, to hold on to them. However, but the people held them in high regard. Now, It's not real clear exactly who none of the rest refers to. When you look at the different people involved here, you have people holding them in high esteem at the very end of these verses. And one would suppose 
that that had to do with unbelievers, Jews there watching, listening, seeing uh, the powerful things that were happening and, the, and hearing, hearing the gospel. So that would, that, those would be basically the non-believers. Now who's included with, they were all with one accord. And I would imagine those are believers. Uh, the Barnabases, the apostles, the, 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 uh, all, all those who were there together representing the gospel of Christ and the, and the, and the kingdom of God. Then it says, but none of the rest. I think it has to go back to the believers. I think it has to be contrasted with all were with one accord, none of the rest. So none of the all, none of the rest is what I'm thinking of. And was there a sifting process going on here? Was there the fear of the Lord bringing out the good proper response of those who all were of one accord and the fear of the Lord on the other hand making a separation of those who say now wait a minute I'm not sure about this the damage inflicted by Ananias and Sapphira and the deceit that they showed in the process but, the, but number three, the ministry still continued. God isn't going to stop the ministry. It's continued with power by the apostles. The last several verses, 14 through 16, all the more believers were added. Multitudes, both men and women, were constantly added to their number. To such an extent, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them and the people coming from cities and vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed. What a sight. Not, what a sight. Not, not by dozens. I don't even think by hundreds. There are a lot of people coming here from various places. There's a, and there's a, a famous painting uh, in Starts with an M, not Rome, but north of Rome. Milan, in, in Milan. Milan. A famous painting by a, a fellow named Tommaso Masaccio. Have you heard of him? He died when he was 27. He painted a whole chapel wall. And one of the paintings on the chapel wall was of people being. Uh, being healed by Peter. However, when you look at this picture, Peter is walking with a couple right behind him. I think one's a, a, a lady. I, I can't really tell, but a couple behind him. And his face is just like this. And he's walking by, and down on his, his right-hand side, there's a fellow that's kneeling down like this, begging. Another person on crutches. And, and uh, there are four, four people on the side here trying to reach him. Nobody else around. As though that's what was happening. My dear friends, that is a very poor portrait of what was happening. Peter, Peter loved these people. Peter, Peter was reaching out to these people. These people were coming in to such an extent that, that they couldn't even reach Peter. And so they would get as near as they could to Peter in order to be healed and to receive that grace of God that came through the gospel 
of the Lord. That's the picture that we get. An extraordinary picture of God's power to work and God's power to work works today. According to these authentic principles of Christianity, of generosity, of love, and of presenting the gospel. Who would ever want to interrupt such a wonderful situation? Well, you'll have to come back next week to find out. <laughs>